hey, just a few things. Um, one, I want to just remind our moms with small children, um, we welcome your small children in the service. Uh, don't feel, I know, like moments of, of, of quiet and when we have moments of reflection, uh, babies just seem to just want to, they want to fill that silence, right? That's okay. Uh, you don't have to feel ashamed. You don't feel like you have to rush out. Uh, what, what babies tell us is there is new life, and so we celebrate that here. Uh, do not feel any shame in your, uh, during the sermon, uh, it does not bother me one bit. I'm going to keep, keep going so you don't ever have to feel uh, worried about that. Second thing, thank you for um, enduring the, uh, the long trek from uh, the grass field uh, here to service. Um, it's, uh, I know it really wasn't that far, um, but uh, we thank you for uh, just uh, still uh, bearing with us and the patience that you have with that. Uh, the parking lot should be uh, good to drive on next Sunday, so we should be good there. Uh, last thing, um, for everybody that came to the cookout last week uh, and for everyone that helped to uh, get that ready, thank you. Uh, man, we had a great time. We played, yeah, it was fun. Uh, there were some of us that played kickball for like two hours. It was super competitive, and uh, we finally had the, the game was tied, and we finally ended it with uh, rock paper scissors um, because we just kept going and going. And it was uh, it was about three o'clock, and it was pretty hot, and it was time to leave. Uh, one guy suffered a concussion, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, I mean, it was intense. It was fun. But uh, praise God. You know, those moments are just a reminder to me of what eternity is going to be like, right? When we get to celebrate, we get to be with one another in the eternal fellowship that uh, is with uh, one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, and with uh, the perfect creator, uh, God, uh, our Savior. And uh, so it's, uh, it, was, it was fun, and uh, we look forward to doing it again. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be starting a series of uh, looking at the five solas, um, the five solas of the Reformation. And I mentioned last week, uh, today's going to be uh, kind of an introduction. And these intro messages for me are always a little uh, harder, right? Because it can feel kind of like a history lesson, especially when you're talking about history and church history. Um, and so my prayer, I mean, all, all week I've really been praying. We prayed this morning, uh, um, Gabe, uh, Pastor Gabe, Pastor Brandon and I, we, we meet every Sunday uh, before service, and we pray for the service. We pray for you all. We pray for our music, pray for this community. And um, so uh, we were praying this morning and just, uh, just really hoping that uh, today would be uh, just encouraging to everyone. Um, in the weeks to come, uh, Lord willing, uh, we will take an in-depth look at each of the five solas. Uh, we're going to look at the importance of each one of them. And then also, most importantly, the scriptural foundation for uh, them all. And today, during our introduction message, uh, my goal is to help us see the significance of the solas. Uh, my hope is that it will further your appetite to learn and grow in your understanding of the doctrines of the Christian faith that really for centuries have helped to shape uh, those who have gone before us and who we are today. Uh, the way that I'm going to approach today's time is kind of threefold, okay? Uh, first, we're going to look at uh, the biblical significance of the solace, like uh, kind of answering the question, why would we do a study on the solas? Why is it important to look back and to really uh, focus in on, uh, on some of these foundational doctrines? Uh, second, what we'll do is look at the historical significance of the solas. Uh, why were they in, uh, important according to history? And then third, uh, we're going to look at the current significance. Um, why are they important for us today? What's important? Why should we uh, take this time? Uh, typically, if you're, you're new uh, with us, we just finished up a 16-week study in the Paul's letter to uh, the Philippians. We typically do a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, book study of the Bible. We will go into um, Amos when we finish this. So we'll look at the 
minor prophet Amos in the Old Testament for uh, some time. Um, but we really feel like it's important to, to pause and look there at these solas. And with that outline in mind, um, would you turn to Romans 12, 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, Romans is in the New Testament. It's right after uh, the Gospels and then Acts. If you're new to the Bible, it's all right. Ask somebody around you. Don't feel any shame in that. But Romans 12, 2, I'm going to read it for us. Then we're going to ask God to work in and through our time uh, today. Romans 12, verse 2, I'm reading from the ESV. It reads this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray and ask God for his help. Father, we come to you uh, this morning. Lord, we admit that apart from your work, we are helpless. And Lord, we need you now. Lord, we need you to speak in and through this introduction message, Lord, that could feel uh, blah, it could feel uh, just plain, it could feel uh, very insignificant, Lord. But I pray and I ask God that you would move in a way that only you can, that you would transform hearts, that our minds, our hearts, our, our whole being would be renewed today, Lord, that if there's anyone in here today that does not know you, Father, that you would draw them to the throne of mercy, Lord, that they would repent, they would confess, they would believe in Christ for salvation, and they would trust and follow him forever. And Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us by your grace and for your glory? In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. amen. So as we begin our study today, and we start to think about the solas of the Reformation, uh, many may ask the question, well, why is this important? Uh, why are these uh, five statements of the faith, why are they important? Uh, why should we even be so dogmatic, right, in, in the way that we look at these statements of the faith? And those aren't wrong questions. Uh, we should be critical thinkers. I encourage you all to, to think, and to assess, and to critique uh, the things that we study and, and how we do it. But let me encourage you that every thing that we do, the way that we critique, the way that we think about things should be looked at through a biblical worldview. We should always ask, what does the Bible say about such matters? Uh, see, if we don't start with the Bible as our authority, we are profoundly inclined to infuse our own opinions and preferences on how we view the world and matters of importance. I mean, it, it, it literally, it will just come without you even thinking about it. I want you to kind of picture it like this. Uh, in every pair of glasses, if you, you wear glasses or if you don't wear uh, prescription glasses, um, then you, you've probably seen someone that does. In every pair of glasses, there's a lens that you look through. And if you wear glasses, then you are giving a prescribed lens that magnifies your vision so that you can see your surroundings clearly. You see what's ahead, or if you look around, whatever you see, you see things clearly. And for Christians, that's God's word. We, we should look at the world around us through the lens of Scripture, and we'll look at this more when we look at sola scriptura, one of the five solas. God's word is the lens that helps us to see things clearly. It provides magnification, introspection, and clarification to who God is and all that he has created. 
But there are two problems that are highly opposed to you and I assessing the world through the lens of Scripture and that are just constantly fighting to replace that lens. The first problem is we have a sinful nature. We're naturally sinners. By nature, we like to sin. Paul points this out in Romans 7, 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, Paul's point here is that in his flesh, in other words, his natural state apart from Christ's intervention, he's constantly at war with sin. He feels it in his being. And he is unable to conquer this sinful nature apart from God's intervention. God God working on his behalf. Jesus Christ's work. He says, it's not necessarily something outside of me. It's something in me, right? It's not just that he's a product of his environment. He is by nature sinful. If you have kids, you know that that is something that naturally happens. See, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, when, when they sinned, they were our first representatives. Like we, we don't like that. We don't like to think that, hey, they were repping us, and hey, if I was there, I would have done something different. No, you wouldn't have. You would have messed it up too. And because of their sin, now we have all inherited a, a sinful nature. We, we have that in us. And contrary to popular belief, we're, we're not born generally good. We're not born with just general, you know, like we're, we're pretty good people. We just need a little bit of help. We are born sinners that are deserving, justfully deserving of God's eternal wrath. Like we are under wrath and then God saves. We've offended a perfect and holy God. That's not the easiest concept to digest, but it is a biblical reality that we must accept if we are to really understand the beauty and gravity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) We, We must know what we are saved from. Our second problem, what always tries to fight for this lens and and fight Christians is that we do. We live in a fallen world. We're currently living in a fallen world. So not only are we sinners, but we live in a world that is generally hostile to God. We're barraged with ideas and beliefs that are contrary to God's word each and every day. It's not just here and there. I mean, it is constant. Brothers and sisters, we must not think of ourselves so highly to think we are somehow immune to the doctrinal erosion that often takes place over time if we do not regularly assess the foundation to which our doctrine is built. There's a constant erosion when we do not continually go back to God's word, looking at what God says about fill in the blank. This is where Romans 12, 2 is helpful as we approach this study of the solas and look at the biblical significance to studying them, to understanding them. Look there again with me. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now there's an implied dilemma here. It doesn't necessarily say it, but it's implied in the text. We see this implication that we are prone to be conformed to the world. 
Like, we're prone to that. That's why Paul writes this. Worldly conformity is a temptation for all. Right? We, we see things. We see the way that the world is living or is acting and doing things and handling things. And we're prone to want to engage, to conform to that. Uh, J.B. Phillips' uh, paraphrase is very helpful here for that text. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce also writes, the idea here is that the world has its way of thinking and doing things that is exerting pressure on Christians to conform to it. Constantly tempted. Uh, It was true for the first century Christians in Rome that Paul was writing to then, and it is true for us now. The church, God's people, must be careful to protect herself from worldly conformity. This doesn't solely mean behavior. That's the first thing we think, right, usually, is the behavior. But Paul's antidote to worldly conformity is a renewal of what? One's mind, the way we think, the way we do things. Uh, This speaks to a different way of thinking and looking at the world around us. Uh, Think back to that idea of the lens and the glasses there. And simply put, our thinking is to be transformed by the gospel and the teaching of it and the study of God's word. And as Christians subject themselves to the truth of God's word, they can then test everyday choices in light of what is good and acceptable to holy creator God. So I assert here that we should care about our doctrine. We should care about the things we believe about God. Everyone in here, you have a theology. You're all theologians, right? Everyone has a theology, and there's a framework in which you view the world and in which you view God. Uh, Some spend more time building that theology. Some spend more time looking at God's Word. And if you don't, your theology is, is that it doesn't matter. Everyone has a theology. Uh, This has corporate implications uh, as the church and personal implication, right, in our own individual lives. And my prayer is that this study will help our minds to be renewed as we continue in our goal as a church to protect, preserve, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ privately and publicly as long as the Lord shall have us here. That is the point of this study. It's a goal in all we do, right? That we would be people that proclaim the good news of Christ. That we would not just gather and sing songs and hear sermons, but we would gather to be equipped. We'll talk about that more here in a minute. Uh, When we were planting this church and Uh, prayerfully considering all aspects of our overall kind of DNA as a church body, uh, many things came into play, right? Uh, We worked through the statement of faith. Um, We adopted the New Hampshire Confession. We are a confessional church. Uh, Our constitution, uh, we prayed through the vision, the, the mission of our church, the values, our liturgy, like what does service time look like? How do we uh, uh, provide a, a full balanced diet for the church to see the gospel, to see scripture, to see praise, to see law and what does the Lord command? But then we see the grace that is given. Put a lot of prayer and thought through each aspect with an aim to make much of Christ in every single thing we do. And even when it came to our logo, right, something that could be very trivial and uh, very um, just, you know, uh, simple, the goal was to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and to help to further fulfill our mission as a church. And, and our mission isn't any, we don't talk about our mission a lot because our mission is very simple. It's a biblical mission, right? Our goal is to fulfill the Great Commission, right? What all Christians should be doing by equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what we want to do as a church. We want to equip you to take the gospel and learn how to articulate it, communicate it, share the good news of Christ with others. But even when it came to our logo, the choice was made to use our logo as a resource for evangelism. That's where the solas come in and why they are included. Uh, if you look around kind of the, the bottom there, the, you can walk through the solas, those two little, uh, uh, they look like Zelda coins, I remember somebody once said, um, but they're these little circles with the different uh, logos on them that tell the stories of the solas. Um, so the question is, well, how did we get the solas? And we're going to walk through these, and the goal would be that you would see these, that this would be a reminder even to you consistently of the gospel and how to articulate it, how to walk someone through how, uh, answering the great question, right? The great question is, how am I saved? The question that people ask is, well, if once they are enlightened and understand, uh, hey, there is a God. They is a God who we now uh, have an obligation to. If we are under the wrath of God, how do I get out from the wrath of God? How am I saved? And this helps to answer the question. So what is the historical significance? What are the solas? The word sola is a Latin word that means alone or only. Uh, you hear kind of our English word solo there, right? Uh, sing a solo or do something solo. And the five solos, solas are as follows. There's sola gratia, which means grace alone. Sola fide means faith alone. Solus Christus means Christ alone. Sola scriptura Scripture alone, and then soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Once again, remember this is an introduction. We're going to spend five weeks walking through each and every one of these. And essentially, what these statements declare, and what if you look at the logo and how we have uh, put it in the uh, the trans uh, the transition of it. The statements declare that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ, according to the Scriptures, to the glory of God. Amen? You can use it as a reference point with our logo. That's the point of that. And the solos were the foundational doctrines that were the rallying cries of the Protestant reformers. Um, they were developed, they were kind of a theological shorthand for all the things that were going on in the Roman Catholic Church that were being taught, the perversions of biblical truth that were being taught of the Roman Catholic Church during their time. And one of the most historical dates that most people are familiar with of the Protestant Reformation is October the 31st, 1517, Reformation Day. Uh, this is when the famous Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. You may have seen that, you may not. And nailing something to the church door during that time was a fairly common practice. Uh, what you would do is you would take uh, uh, something that you would want to be debated and you would put it on the church door. It's kind of like the Twitter of the time, right? You, you put it, here's the board of discussion, now we're going to argue about it. So Luther may not have necessarily uh, meant for his 95 theses or complaints against the Roman Catholic Church to create such a revolution, but by God's grace, it forever altered the face of Western civiliz civilization and the rest of the world. 
Uh, if you were something other than a Roman Catholic, then you were a product of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you hear the word protest in Protestant. And the, what they were saying is they were trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they actually didn't reform it. They actually just got kicked out, excommunicated. Uh, that's why we have uh, now Protestant denominations. And there were many people that contributed to the Protestant Reformation in many different places of the known world. And the Protestant Reformation was not a product of just that one event in Wittenberg. It was a long time in the making. But Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses was kind of the match that lit the fire to the widespread change. Uh, he was a key player, so it's important to look at what led him to these complaints against the Roman Catholic Church. And let me just kind of give you uh, why I, I, I've chosen to even just walk through this. My hope, my prayer, right, is that uh, you would live a life that would be bold. My, my hope, my prayer is that you would be someone who stands firm on biblical truth. That you would not be afraid to take a stand, uh, just like Martin Luther. The goal in looking at this was that we will see what was happening then. We'll see kind of his perspective of things. And then that we would too evaluate and, and be, uh, be good with saying, you know what? Things around us aren't quite right. So let's look quickly at just uh, some of the history of what led Martin Luther to that day of nailing the 95 Theses to that door. So his pilgrimage to the faith began in, Jul began in July of 1505 when he was 21 years old. Uh, Martin Luther was studying law at a university, and he ended up getting caught in a rainstorm. And there, the story tells us, history tells us that it was a lightning bolt that hits a tree right beside him, and uh, Martin Luther freaks out. Uh, and at that moment, his life kind of flashes before his eyes. Have you ever had one of those moments where your life kind of, boom. And Martin Luther here, he, he has this kind of vision of, of, of hell, of the terror of hell. And he actually cries out. He says, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Maybe you've had an experience where you said, God, if you just help me this one time, I'll do whatever you want. Now, R Martin Luther was, uh, of course, then he was under a Roman Catholic view of the church. And uh, St. Anne was kind of his family's patron saint. But here he was. And he makes this claim that he's going to uh, join, he's going to become a, a, a monk and Luther held true to this promise. He entered the monastery beginning his search for salvation, kind of figuring out, okay, well, what do I do to truly be saved? But he did things in a monasterial way by an attempt to earn his way to favor with God. He wanted to try to earn, to do good works. He fasted. He prayed. Uh, he slept without blankets. He deprived himself of all worldly pleasures and comforts. Um, he's later quoted as saying, that if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it's a funny word, right? It was I. I mean, he, he was a, a model of good works according to the monk's way of doing things. Yet all he did did not provide him with that eternal security he was looking for in his relationship with God. He did all the right things, followed all these ways of doing things, trying to earn a right relationship with God, and Luther was empty. No matter what he did, he could only sense God's anger and not his love. In November of 1510, Luther traveled to Rome in hopes to find peace with his maker, 
uh, through visiting and, and, and going to the holy place of that time, which Rome, uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, claimed. And what he did there was engage with certain relics of the day. He visited all the holy sites of their time. He sought the appropriate merit of the saints that hopefully he could kind of receive this genuine consolation. Luther did it all, but he still felt no satisfaction. He felt as if he was just alienated from God. Further and further, the more good he did, the farther he felt from God. In April of 1511, Luther was transferred to Wittenberg, Germany, where he began to seek peace with God through the confessions of sins. He starts going and he starts to adopt kind of a, a, another way of thinking. He starts to confess his sins. And it's later said that Luther would sometimes confess for six hours at a time. It's a lot of confession. And his reason why is because he was petrified of forgetting something. And he would just be constantly reminded of, of, of something, right? As he confessed, but still he felt no closer to God. The turning point for Luther came when he was asked to study for his doctorate and take the chair of biblical studies at the University of Wittenberg. The more he studied, the more he learned. The more the gospel of Jesus Christ became clear to him. He studied and taught through the Psalms. He studied and taught through Galatians. He studied and taught through the book of Romans. And then one day he had his moment of clarity as he was preparing for a lecture and he came to understand the gospel. He had this just moment of clarity, him and a Bible. The Holy Spirit working in and through and the more that Luther came to understand the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the more he saw the corruption of the church in his day. The glorious truths, the gospel that are summarized by the five solas had become buried under a mound of greed, corruption, worldliness, and false teaching in the Roman Catholic Church. They had a practice of even uh, giving of indulgences. And what would happen there is that basically you could purchase an indulgence. Uh, and what that would happen is, uh, according to the Roman Catholic Church, that if you bought this indulgence, it would lessen your time in purgatory, more or less your punishment. So literally giving money for the forgiveness of sins. You could even buy them for loved ones. Loved ones that maybe had gone before you that had already passed, and you could pay money to literally get people out of hell. Uh, the Pope of Luther's day was uh, really encouraging these sales of indul indulgences. He campaigned for this. And what they were trying to do during this time was they were trying to build a monstrous, glamorous building. They wanted this building. Uh, it's still there today. It's the epic uh, Catholic cathedral known as St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It's a massive place. It's a beautiful place. And the Pope during that time, he was like, hey, sell these indulgences because it's gonna, we're going to build this cathedral and it's going to be great. Uh, Johann Tetzel was one of the indulgence sellers of Luther's area. Each one kind of had, uh, they would send people out to each area. And this guy used these little advertising jingles to encourage people to buy his indulgences. And here's what he would say, I quote, as soon as the coin and the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Once Luther realized the true gospel that the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice alone for our sins, I mean, he found this practice repulsive. The more he studied the scriptures, the more he was convinced of the need to show the church how it had strayed away from the truth. 
So Luther then began the journey to reform the church in his day. Let me give you a quick overview of the contrast of the five solas, of what the solas say and what the reformers were fighting for and what the Roman Catholic Church of that time was claiming. Uh, One, the Roman Catholic Church taught that the foundation for faith was a blend of the scriptures and sacred tradition and the teachings of the magisterium and the pope. So kind of the the leader. So they, they combined all these things and said, hey, this is what the authority is. And the reformer said, no, 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 no. The foundation is scripture alone. That's where we find our final authority. Sola Scriptura. The Roman Catholic Church taught that people were saved through a combination of God's grace, the merits that they accumulate through penance and good works, and the overabundance of merits that the saints before them accumulated. There's a lot of stuff going on there, right? The Reformers responded, we are saved by God's unmerited grace alone. Sola gratia. The Roman Catholic Church of the time taught that we are justified, which just means made right with God, by faith and the works that we produce. The Reformers responded, no, we are justified by faith Alone, which then lays hold of the imputed righteousness, the righteousness that we don't have but is given to us. It's an alien righteousness that you cannot earn. That Christ has given because of him. And God freely bestows to those who believe in Christ's finished work on their behalf. It's faith in him. Sola fide. The Roman Catholic Church taught that we are saved by the merits of Christ and the saints and that we approach God through Christ, the saints, and Mary who all pray and intercede for us. Remember, that's why Luther, he he prayed to St. Anne. And the Reformers responded, no, we are saved by the work of Christ alone. And we come to God through Christ alone. He is our high priest. Solus Christus. The Roman Catholic Church taught that what Martin Luther called the theology of glory. And this stated that the glory for a sinner's salvation could be attributed partly to Christ, partly to Mary and the saints, and then partly to the sinner himself. And the reformers responded, no. The one and only true gospel is a gospel that gives all glory to God alone for the salvation of sinners. Soli Deo Gloria. As you can see, there was much to be reformed during their time church had conformed to the ways of the world. And I personally believe the state of the church at large in our current day and age, although faced with different issues, is not much better. So finally, what I want to do is I want to look here at just some of our our, our current cultural moment. And I want to look at the significance that these five solas have on our day and age. Uh, in a book titled, uh, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, which I highly recommend you all read. And I'm actually going to send a link to it uh, on the newsletter, as we often do, just send recommended readings. I'm going to send a link to that uh, on the newsletter, and then also going to send a link to uh, Ligonier. Um, they do a, a state, a current state of theology um, kind of uh, um, a survey uh, you can look that up on your own. It kind of uh, it gives us the, uh, the current state of how proclaiming evangelical Christians uh, are looking at God's word. 
Uh, there's some startling, startling discoveries that have been made there. Uh, people uh, that just don't understand, and we're going to look here in a moment at that, but they just don't know the word. And I'm going to send that link out too in the newsletter. Um, two books, or one book and then one link. Uh, for that state of theology, really encourage you all to, to look at it, read through it, pray, right? Pray that, that God would change hearts. But in the book of whatever, uh, called Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, uh, John James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He says, the chief problem with the evangelical church today is that we have been increasingly conformed to this world's patterns. And if we are to see a new Reformation, we will have to break away from these patterns and seek to recover the authentic biblical gospel, learning again to think and act in God's way. Brothers and sisters, this was written in 2009. And I'm sad to say that most of us are painfully aware that things have not gotten much better than Boyce's time himself. Now, personally, I think there are two major categories that these problems can kind of be lumped into. Two major reasons here. The first is theological illiteracy, which is a product of biblical illiteracy. We're illiterate to God's word. So many don't know the Bible. And that's partly because churches at large aren't teaching the Bible. Uh, many churches have sacrificed the truth of Scripture on the altar of popularity. And this is to be expected, right? I mean, Paul warns Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. But the church isn't the only one to blame, right? Look, or the, the, the preachers aren't the only one to blame. Because look at what it says. They accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So it's not just the preacher's fault. It's the people's. One, they stay there. And two, they allow this to be taught. See, as people, as Christians, we've got a lot going against us, right? We've got a lot in our day and age. You know, technology is a gift and a curse. And it all depends on how you use it. I mean, we spend so much time we talk about this a lot. We spend so much time just doing mindless activities, right? trying to amuse ourselves. We do this rather than studying God's word. I mean, think about it. What do you do when you have a few minutes of free time? You know, what do you, what do, you do when you're trying to fill the space and you're trying to unwind? Do you, do you scroll through Facebook? Do you check in with your you know, favorite reality show or your favorite you know, series and what's going on? You, you jump on your, your, your Twitter, your Instagram, seeing what's, you know, what everybody else is doing. I mean, we spend so much time just doing mindless. And we have an endless access to these mindless Amusements at our fingertips now. I mean, so many, right? Watch these reality TV and or follow these, these stars and these Hollywood people that, man, they're just godless. And we spend so much time letting them influence the way that we see things. And it's in so much contrast, in a stark contrast to what God calls us to be. We let them influence us. And it's no wonder we get bored at church. We get bored with theology. We get bored when we're gathered because we're looking for amusement. We have dumbed 
ourselves down so much our attention spans are so minimal. People say, that's too deep for me. Theology is too deep. And as I said, we all have a theology. But remember Paul's words. We are to be renewed. Our minds are to be transformed, renewed. And maybe something is deep for you. Maybe uh, the, the idea of studying God's word deeply and profoundly is is hard concept for you to grasp right now, but by God's grace, He will help to transform our minds, to help us to understand more of who He is and more of what He's called us to be. I think the second major issue in our modern day that once again can be lumped a lot of the problems can be lumped into is just a misunderstanding of ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is just the church. What is the church? There's a misunderstanding now in our American culture, especially of what the church is. I mean, our American churches have become more of a come and see, watch the show, rather than a come and be. The church. Many churches, unfortunately, are nothing more than a Sunday show. It's all about putting on a performance. It's all about this performance, and you, you, you watch, and you know, you, you're going to keep giving so the performance can keep going. And that's not what the New Testament calls the church to be. The word church comes from a word called ecclesia which means a gathering of people. It wasn't even a new word. Jesus, when he says, I will build my church, he's using a, a, a term that was fairly known then. It was a gathering of people. He just says, my gathering is going to look a lot different. <laughs> You're going to worship. It's going to be a gathering of my people. It's going to be a people that do things different. The church is not a business. It's not a business that puts on a show every Sunday. Rather, it is God's people that gather to worship him and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And if you look through the New Testament, the New Testament gives us some instructions on what that gathering should look like. And while there are nuances and there's, I mean, there's different things that are biblical that people do and do them in different ways, I am sad to say that most of what we see today has no resemblance of the church we see throughout the New Testament. Many have succumbed to the philosophy of pragmatism, which pr promotes a do whatever works to get them there. This idea has bred the attractional church model. Right? We're, we're going to do all these things that, you know, we don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about sin. If we say theological terms, we'll, we'll twist them to make them mean a little something different. That doesn't help anyone. This can be contributed to the kind of CEO mindset that has overcome many church leaders. Brothers and sisters, we must refute this way of thinking. Reminding our brothers and sisters in Christ, as Paul's words in Romans 1.16 remind us, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the gospel that saves. And only the gospel that we must preach it is God who saves. And while we should be hospitable, compassionate, caring to all who join us in corporate worship, we must remember that we do not need to adopt worldly strategies to accomplish the mission of God. Hey, look, I lived in rebellion to God for many years. And the last thing I needed was just someone, one, telling me, like, hey, man, you're, you're all right where you are. You're good. The last thing I needed was someone just adding some Christian phrases 
to the things I was doing. And I didn't need to see more people acting like me or doing the things I was doing or telling me that I was okay in my sin. I needed truth. You know, when you're drowning, you don't need someone to, to, to cheer you on. You need someone to throw you a, a life preserver, to dive in and get you, to save you, to help you. And brothers and sisters, that is what the world around us needs. They need truth. They need to know that, man, no matter how far gone you are, there is a God who loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place. That if you would confess of your sins... Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ that it is only through him that we can ever attain right relationship with the creator. And that there are drastic, eternal stakes to play. We must promote the good news of Jesus Christ. We must promote and proclaim, protect, preserve, and by God's grace, as long as we will be gathered together under the name Christ Covenant Fellowship, and God has us here in Lynchburg, Virginia, we will be a ch church that is rooted in that. And we will be rooted in these five solas, standing firm in his word so that we will be able to weather the storms that we will not be conformed to the patterns of the world, that we would be a people that encourage one another towards truth and would share the gospel with those that need to hear it. By God's grace, for his glory. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we need you. And Lord, help us to remember those that have gone before us. Help us to not be so quick to think that, hey, that was then, this is now, and uh, we've got it figured out. God, we need you. My prayer is that as we study these solas and we look at these core truths, that are so significant to the faith that if there was a subtraction of any of them, Lord, we would not have a faith to stand. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for your plan, for Christ's work, and for the Spirit's presence moving keeping us for you. Give you all the praise and the glory for what you have done. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand as we close with blessed assurance.